Hi, welcome back to Breach, Buckeye's Racial Ethnic Equity Awareness Center in Healthcare. I am your host, Ayush Mera. I'm an honors undergraduate student at The Ohio State University. Hi, my name is Dr. Demisha Rankin, and I am the Associate Dean for Admissions over at the College of Medicine here at Ohio State. I'm also an Associate Professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and the Vice Chair for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in our department. Thank you, Dr. Rankin. We're very happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. We brought on Dr. Rankin to discuss her knowledge in racial and ethnic inequalities in medical school admissions. In this interview, we will focus on the history of the medical school application and how many medical schools changed to a holistic approach to judging applicants. So Dr. Rankin, could you tell us more about your background in medicine? Sure. Uh, I initially did not know that I wanted to be a physician. I did not have any physicians in my family. However, I was fortunate enough to have teachers and mentors and researchers that saw potential in me and helped to support me along the way. And so they were very instrumental in my love for science and wanting to help people. And along with that, I would say my grandmother, Lena Sparks, was very instrumental in instilling in all of her children and grandchildren the principles of just helping someone else, being compassionate, uh, just to help someone, period. So following up on that, how has your grandma impacted you? Well, my grandmother was always a figure of community support, let's just say. Uh, she, we attended, so first of all, I grew up in a single parent home, so let's start there. Uh, my mom, also very, very instrumental uh, as the oldest child. I was the oldest child, and so I always viewed my role in a single parent home as one to kind of step up to the plate to help my mom, help my mom take care of my little sister. And so the sense of responsibility and my skill set at trying to get things done was something that I had to learn in order to survive uh, growing up where I grew up, which was Toledo, Ohio. I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio. And so each summer and winter we would spend with my grandmother. And part of our routine in being with her was that you had to get up and you had chores and you had responsibilities. And one of the biggest responsibilities that I think really impacted me was our role at the soup kitchen. And so this soup kitchen was housed in our church that we attended there in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so my grandmother woke up early Monday through Friday. She prepared the meals. She served the community. And we were expected to be there, whether it was to help uh, prepare the food, unload the utensils to set the tables. And so we it was really a, a grassroots effort to help those that were neediest, that, that were hungry. And she always treated everyone with love and respect, no matter what they looked like, no matter what they smelled like, no matter what issues they had going on. Her goal was to be able to feed them and show them a, have, have a warm spot in their day. Well, that is a very touching story. I'm sure many could be inspired by all the lessons your grandma instilled in you. We can clearly see where those lessons taught from your grandmother has brought you. So going more into that, 
As a member of the Anesthesiology Resident Recruitment and Selection Committee, as well as being part of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee and Anti-Racism Task Force for the College of Medicine, what role have you served and how is that how has that impacted the students and the school as a whole? Wow, that is a loaded question. Um, and it is a one that makes me really be honest and reflective that, first of all, I never anticipated to be a role model in the capacity that I have been. And I think that's probably the best answer I can offer is that I think I've been a role model. I've been an advocate. Uh, I have been able to be in spaces that traditionally individuals such as myself didn't have the opportunity to be in those spaces. So having this um, privilege to serve and advocate in these various roles adds perspective uh, that wasn't there before as just a different lens on how to be able to solve some of the problems that these specific groups have been challenged with. And then when I say the groups, I mean like the admissions committee or the anesthesiology department or recruitment efforts, you know, really making a process objective and fair adds to who can actually be considered for some of these positions. And I think that that's my role. And so even before getting to all of these roles, I had to ask myself, do I want to be in academics or do I want to be in private practice? And so um, there is a difference. And I think the impact really was the driving force. Because for me, as an anesthesiologist, the best anesthetic is one when the patient does not remember me. And like that is hands down a good job. But as I thought about the impact that I could have in academics, whether it be with learners, um, residents, medical students, those relationships are more long lasting and more impactful. And so I get to be I get to have the best of both worlds, quite frankly, in academics here at Ohio State. I get to take care of patients. I get to interact with learners. I get to teach. I get to explore research. And so that impact is far reaching. So as a role model for students and residents and so on, what are some future impacts that you would like to make? Wow, another great question. I see why you do this. Uh, those impacts, I want it to be commonplace to, for, I want it to be commonplace that not everyone sitting at the table looks the same. Not everyone sitting at the table has the same perspective or lived experiences. Diversity truly is a driver of excellence. And so I want it to be when you walk into a room that you don't have to think about, you know, how much diversity is present in this space because it's automatically diverse. And so you don't even have to think about that because it is important. Diversity is important. Representation is important. And so I think that is the far reaching impact. Yeah, I agree with you. You bring up a very good point and diversity should not be something that's forced. It should be something that's normalized. And going off that, Back in 1910, there was this well-known book called the Flexner Report. It was a highly impactful book that changed medical education 
by implementing greater scientific knowledge over rational thinking. This book is also highlighted by many derogatory remarks regarding African Americans in medicine, saying that they're better as sanitarians who could keep the whites clean. This was seen as the catalyst for reducing African American medical schools. How does that continue to impact medicine today? Thank you for bringing up the Flexner report. Uh, this was this report was generated at a time when our country still identified race as a social designation, a political designation, um, and it was assigning value truly based upon race. Um, it was also created at a time where systemic racism was and continues to be very present and palpable. And so it did create challenges for schools that were educating African-Americans to become physicians. And it did have biases in it. Um, and in the words of my friend, Dr. Nanette Luquesta, talent is dispersed evenly and opportunity is not. And so when I think about this report and the impact that it had on medical education for African-Americans, it was truly uh, detrimental. Um, and it was, again, created in a time where it was normal to have water fountains separate, one designated for whites and one designated for coloreds. And so that was a time of the norm. So I, I understand but I completely disagree with any sentiments that anyone based upon race has limited capacity to excel as being any type of physician that they want. And so when I think about the Flexner report and how it impacts today, I think it still has some impact and, and perceptions that African-Americans may not be well suited for certain specialties. And you can see that you can see the lack of diversity in some specialties. And so um, can I blame it all on the Flexner report? Flexner report? Of course not. I think there are many layers to the problems. Um, there has been systematic exclusion uh, written by policies that may not articulate uh, a race or um, ethnicity as a determinant, but it's been very cleverly built to be able to exclude large groups of individuals. And so this is why representation um, matters when policies are being created, when structures are being made, when uh, accrediting bodies are coming up with policies that are going to impact uh, medical education. This is why we need representation. And so unfortunately, I think we do still see some echoes of the Flexner report in today's medical practice. Based off of those conclusions, do you think that there should be like a new report that does not focus on race and instead focuses on how medical schools are ran? I don't know if we are in a time period where a new report uh, could potentially help. I think what does matter is that accrediting bodies um, for various types of education, whether it's medical education or otherwise, have very intentional thoughts to understand the policies and the rules that will be enacted. How does it affect 
individuals that are marginalized? Um, and how does it create opportunities to ensure fair and objective and, and supportive policies that allows for the diversification of medical education as well as other professions? I noticed that a lot of your research and study actually has to do with understanding equity in the medical field. In a world that's often dictated by scores and numbers, testing is super vital. And standardized testing isn't new to any student, right? I'm sure many of our listeners have likely taken standardized tests, such as the ACT, SAT, or even the LSAT or MCAT already. So can you just briefly describe what the testing process is for medical school? Sure. Um, Students who would like to go to medical school typically take the MCAT, which is the Medical College Admissions Test. And so in preparation for this test, it is an an expected, um, it is an expected requirement that students prepare their scientific courses appropriately. And so the MCAT is an eight hour exam. It has four sections. Um, And anyone that is preparing to take a test thinks that eight hours is a long time, and it is. But the test is looking at, you know, your scientific understanding, your ability to critically reason through problems and, and little passages that you're presented with. There's also a psychology component to un, to the exam because you know there you need to understand some of the psychology and social impacts uh, that uh, you will you need to be able to understand the psychology and the sociology impacts of being a physician and of course it's it's hardcore sciences biology and physics and biochem so students have to prepare to take the test and is it eight hour test. It is an expensive test. It is not a test that you wanna take one time just to see how you do, because not only do you have to be able to have the medical knowledge, but you also have to have the stamina to go eight hours and consistently answer the questions in, a, in an affirmative manner. And so preparation is, is key and yeah, preparation is key. And for a test just as hard as the MCAT, which requires eight hours in one day, that also requires a lot of prep beforehand. Some people are spending three months, six months, or even up to a year to study for an exam this big. And to study for those, you need access to test prep resources. But it's very common to see that these test prep resources are unequal and often very expensive. So do you think that this is a big explanation for the demographic inequality we see in the medical field? Or do you think that there are other factors? I think there are other factors and it does include access to resources. Um, Even if we think back to the K through 12 education and the opportunities that some students may or may not have, the curriculum that students have been exposed to, that prepares you for college. And if you are inadequately prepared for college, now you're in this college setting and you may be behind your peers and then you're expected to perform at a level that demonstrates all of the skills that you have when you already have a gap coming into college. And so 
Um, yes, resources are access to resources are key for performing well, but also the K through 12 education as well as undergraduate education are all important factors for students doing well. And so we know that there are gaps in the educational system based upon um, where someone grows, go, grows up and where someone goes to school at. And could you elaborate more on those gaps that we are currently seeing? You know, there is this very interesting tool called the Childhood Opportunity Index. And so this looks at a child's potential for being successful um, in life. And, and of course, that is a very broad terms, but it looks at the access for early childhood education, um, grocery stores in a neighborhood, green space in a neighborhood, the academic rigor of the school system. So all these things feed into one's opportunity. And again, in the, in the spirit of my, of my colleague um, who stated that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And so when you have students that are not set up to have the best opportunities for success, they're going to fall short. And it doesn't mean that they're not talented. It just simply means that they've been working within the limits and constraints that they have. But if given an opportunity to have those resources um, and to be able to tap into the network of support, those students oftentimes are able to be very successful. And then do you have any ideas on how we could change that inequality at the level of K through 12? Again, that is going to be, that is a very good question. And it is, it requires a multi-pronged, multiple layers approach. Um, it, it's not just a one size fix all or one solution fix all. Um, it, the solutions entail social, economic, educational, um, safety, growing up in a safe neighborhood does wonders for um, a child's ability to, to be successful at school. So it, there are multiple things that need to be addressed to, to help the K-12 education, which is foundational to your undergraduate education. So let's say a child makes it through K-12 and then makes it through undergrad as well. Do you think that there is still inequalities apparent in med school as the student progresses through the medical board examinations and applications for residency? I wouldn't say that there are necessarily inequalities. I just think that there are gaps in experience um, and gaps potentially in understanding how to navigate professional school spaces, quite frankly. And so those gaps still are present Maybe they close a little bit, but I still think it, it becomes a challenge. It can be. Medical school is hard. And if you have not refined your study skills, if you not have, have not refined your time management skills, if you have social familial issues that are pulling your attention away from school, you're going to continue to have a gap and potentially not perform at your best. And so as we look to diversify our medical school classes, we understand that the resources of support are going to look different because we're matriculating different students. And so really understanding 
Financial wellness is something that we focus on at our medical school because not everyone understands what it means to have good credit or what is even on your credit score or how to work through identity theft and how to pay back a loan and how to structure and prepare for to pay for your first home. So there are a lot of uh, differences um, and there are a lot of gaps that may exist depending upon you know, as you matriculate more diverse students into medical school. And then with all those apparent gaps, do you think undergraduate universities could help fill in those gaps that are currently missing? Oh, absolutely. I think representation matters, you know, having counselors that understands the distance traveled for students that are underrepresented can be very helpful. It, It does a student no good to go in to talk to a counselor who doesn't understand that they don't feel safe or that they don't they can't focus on school if they don't have money for food or they don't understand how to tap into resources so yes representation matters and undergraduates can help to support their students and and make things that are normalized for some it's just more readily available for others. So do you feel that there should be some sort of set standard for undergraduate universities to implement for these students looking at the differences in the support they received previously and what they can do now since they're all at the same spot? I do. I think that there, while you can't be too prescriptive, you can provide expectations of categories that of needs that need to be met with various students. And so I don't believe that there is a one size that fit all, fits all. I think even though we categorize or clump underrepresented into one group, it's differences even within underrepresented uh, groups of students. You know, I think about my Latino or Hispanic or African-American or Native American. Each of those groups of students have different types of struggles. And so you can't apply one set of resources to another group without taking into context the distance travel or the needs that need to be met. So one of the gaps in undergraduate universities is retention. How do you think that gap can be changed? Retention is something that is important both at the undergraduate level and the medical school education level because it's not enough to just simply get students in the door and say I've done my job that's just simply not enough and so retention is essential and it can be achieved by again multiple approaches understanding the needs of the students whether it is sense of belonging and creating a space that they feel welcome to be their full authentic self, making sure that the faculty don't um, have bias in their teaching and their approaches. Um, You know, we recently did a survey at the College of Medicine as part of our anti-racism action plan. And unfortunately, students are experiencing bias most often from their faculty or their uh, instructor. And so that is horrible. In addition, students are also experiencing bias from other students. And so the, the environment for which a student is learning has to be welcoming, has to be 
um, accepting of every single student from whatever walk of life that they're bringing to the university. And so retention can be supported by increasing a sense of belonging, increasing and removing um, any barriers for a hidden curriculum. You know, I think it does students a disservice to try and um, discourage certain types of programs or even preferentially uh, encourage. Uh, I have a, I know someone that actually was encouraged by their advisor uh, to pursue um, a, an area of study that they had zero interest. But in, and it was such a superficial recommendation that it was disappointing. And so really putting people that are passionate about being in uh, advising roles is important. Making sure they even have the skill set and the knowledge to be able to accurately and making sure that they have an ability to really give good direction to students from all walks of life. Financial uh, support is important. Students from underrepresented backgrounds. College is expensive. So who has the money to pay for that? So really uh, increasing scholarships, increasing um, the social networks, increasing um, the expect, making sure the expectations of performance are clear, you know, all those things add to it, add to help support retention. Another gap is academic support. Okay. So we know that the K through 12 education may not be the greatest for students that come from under-resourced backgrounds and neighborhoods. And so one thing undergraduate institutions can do, and, and I really, I hope that they are doing this, but really enrich the academic support wraparound services for students, for all students, especially those students that maybe come from, you know, a federally designated impoverished area, like just make it, make it a norm for asking for help or, or, or academic assistance and tutors and, and take away any stigma associated with having a tutor. Cause quite frankly, if you are being tutored, maybe you can become the tutor because if you can teach the material, you have mastered the material. And so really taking away any stigma of asking for help, academic mental help, mental well-being, it is a big adjustment for students to come to such um, a, a, a large campus or any campus or just even moving away from home to go off to college is a big step and support is required. And so academic support is essential, social support, sense of belonging, understanding the expectations of being a college or a professional student is important and is not always very clear. So those are things that could help with retention. So looking at these gaps and with the current ongoing issues with COVID-19, how has COVID affected these gaps and medical admissions? Well, we know that COVID has impacted every facet of life and admissions is not exempt from that. You know, our students have limited experiences and limited ability to gain experiences. And even even let's back up even before the experiences, their classroom experiences have had to pivot. You know, um, normally we expect the students to have an in-person laboratory experience for organic chemistry or whatever other labs that you were expected to have. Why? Because this helps to 
lay the foundation for your medical curriculum. And so you can anticipate and expect that students' experiences have been altered. And so how has that foundation shifted in terms of preparation for medical school? Um, I think institutions have made fantastic pivots to be able to meet the needs of the students, but it's just simply not the same. Um, our, so academic, academic enrichment has been impacted by COVID. The experiences. Now let's turn to experiences. Uh, students should have healthcare experiences, whether it be shadowing, whether it be volunteering, whether it be, you know, working as a medical scribe, all of those activities inform your decision to pursue medicine. When this had to pivot, this meaning shadowing had to pivot to more virtual platforms and you kind of talk to doctors and get their perspectives. Those are fine experiences, but it's nothing Nothing doesn't even compare to being on call overnight with an anesthesiologist seeing a trauma come into the trauma bay or the OR or emergency C-section, really seeing all the parts in action. That's medicine. And so it's been hard to really allow these types of experiences for our students across the United States, quite frankly, because at one point we didn't have vaccinations and now we do have vaccinations and then we have upticks and downticks and surges and deaths. And so it can be very, very scary to be in the clinical environment. And of course we don't wanna cause harm to our students or put them at risk. So students' experiences in the healthcare arena have really suffered. Uh, research, research sometimes is not essential and that had to get paused. So that has limited students' experiences in that realm. Volunteering. You know, and in spite of all of the limitations, some of our students have proved to be very, very innovative and creative and need to be applauded for those efforts as well. But COVID-19 really has impacted the experience of, of a lot of students as they prepare for medical school. And I can speak on that as well. I took general chemistry as a freshman online and looking back at it, I feel like I don't remember anything. The experience just was not the same. And as I go ahead and prepare for my MCAT soon, I feel like I have to repeat all that content because of COVID-19. And then additionally, all these experiences, you're right, they just weren't available. I was struggling to find an internship or a volunteer opportunity. And I'm sure that that affected a lot of students. It did. And, and I'm sorry to hear of, of the challenges that you've had. And the other thing that I think about too is global health. I mean, how awesome is it to be able to go to underserved areas to be able to help and even rural areas, but even within the United States to be able to go into some of these communities to help enrich um, their medical access, even if it is temporarily. I think those types of experiences were completely halted for the most part uh, for student experiences and all of those can serve as motivation to want to pursue medicine. I agree. And those experiences are actually still being halted. My educational abroad trip was actually canceled just uh, recently. So these opportunities are still very limited due to COVID-19. So moving on from the gaps in K-12 and undergraduate admissions, do you think there's an insufficient level of diversity in the medical field? Absolutely, there is. You know, we 
if we look at the general population and then look to the medical profession in terms of representation, the reason that we say they're underrepresented is because they are truly underrepresented as compared to the general population. And so, yes, there are extreme disparities. And, um, you know, medicine for the longest time had and could be viewed as a profession, of course, of very high prestige, but often simply for the wealthy. If you look at the income level of the majority of students that actually matriculate and had matriculated into medical school, I do think we are taking steps to try and address and remedy this collectively, as I think about all the medical schools across the United States. But we have a long way to go. You know, we have a long gap to make up because, quite frankly, um, the percentage of doctors, specifically black male doctors, the number of black men that were physicians was higher in the 1980s than what we have in current day. That is a problem. And it is not a problem that happened by coincidence. It is a result of the systemic racist issues that exist, unfortunately, within our medical society. But like I said, we are making strides to address this. Um, At Ohio State, we use holistic review, which means that we look at the entire applicant and it takes more than just a good MCAT and a good GPA to matriculate into our medical school and many other medical schools across the United States. And so we look at experiences, we look at their attributes, and we look at their metrics. And even as we look at their metrics, we know that the reason that we're looking at the MCAT is to simply try and predict likelihood of success. And success comes in different forms, meaning that you don't have to have just a perfect MCAT to to, uh, be successful in medical school. In fact, the average MCAT score is a 500. And so what does that mean? That means that if you have a 500 on the MCAT, um, which is the 50th percentile, excuse me, maybe a 501, because it it does shift depending upon the test. So let's just call it a 501, which is a 50th percentile. You are still likely to graduate from medical school in four years. You're still likely to pass your your, uh, step examinations, which are tests that you have to take once you're in medical school and be successful with them, and then likely to go on to be able to get into a residency program. So um, while we see that those that are well-resourced tend to uh, get very high scores on the MCAT. Those that do average still can go on to have more than an average career and a very successful career. So holistic review is one thing that medical school admissions can use to help correct the major um, disparities that exist in terms of representation in medical school. And then do you think this holistic approach will solve the racial disparities that we are seeing today? I think it is one step. It is not the only answer. Um, There still needs to be policy changes, governing changes, cultural changes. Uh, But yes, holistic review is definitely one mechanism because you're making it an objective and fair assessment of what someone will add to the medical profession. And so... Having that lens is critical to making sure that, you know, we're not just looking at a perfect score because let's just be honest, you you have some really bright individuals, but if you lack 
empathy and compassion and commitment to service, then maybe you should reconsider or rethink why are you trying to pursue uh, becoming a physician? Because it truly is a life of service um, and you are giving of yourself to others when you're tired, when you're hungry, in the middle of the night. Um, I think about my OB colleagues, you know, babies come seven days a week, 365. And so, you know, you're not truly off. You may have a partner covering you, but you still have your patients that you care about and you grow to care about and you should care about. And so that, that just takes a degree of selflessness that is not measured by a score generate it on a, a standardized exam. So it sounds like the doctors need to be passionate. They need to be passionate for their patients. And that does not get affected by the color of their skin or their test score. Is that so? Yeah, I mean, race is, is something that is a social construct. And, and it's something that unfortunately is a, is a phenotypical expression that many of us cannot change. Okay. And so it is unfair to assume um, anyone's place in society based upon their race or ethnicity. Everyone has talent. Everyone has ability. It is just a matter of what do you do with the skills that you have to help someone else? So going back to your shocking statistic about having fewer black male doctors, why has that happened What's the main reason behind the lower number of male black doctors? Unfortunately, I think there are multiple reasons why the number of African-American men or black doctor, black male physicians in medicine has drastically fallen off. Um, I think the over imprisonment of our black men um, at earlier ages and really removing them even from the K through 12 educational system and not even getting to college. So if you think about, um, and, and this is an analogy from uh, my, one of my colleagues, um, that one of my colleagues, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, and, and she had been in leadership roles and, and involved in AAMC. In any case, she, at one particular meeting, she described a leaky pipeline um, where if you think about the K through 12 educational system, and if you think about and visualize a pipe and along the pipe, there can be leak points where you kind of lose water. And so think about losing the number of African-American men in the K through 12 educational system from either being labeled as aggressive and being dismissed from the class or falling victim to being in the streets um, and having, you know, to rely on illegal activity to provide for their families and just really school being visualized or, or presented as something where they can't make money or they can't be successful because They've been labeled as a distractant or, um, you know, uh, just not valued in the classroom. So even if they graduate from high school, the opportunity to attend college may be cost prohibitive. Maybe they have to rye and take care of their family. Um, maybe there are other social factors which, you know, lead them away from undergraduate. But so let's just say they even get to undergraduate. Um, 
Are they being supported in the science majors? Were they, did they even have that nidus of inspiration in maybe their seventh or eighth grade class to be inspired to see what a physician's life is like? Like really role modeling, even from the social aspect. If you look on television, how often do you see at least now, maybe you may see it more often, but how often do you really see black men serving as professionals outside of the sports arena? It's just not a narrative that is heavily advertised. Um, and so I think that it's multifactorial. And as I think about a leaky pipe and all the different points for where black men may be lost to society and not even considering medical school, and how often has the young black student been encouraged to even pursue a science. Okay, so then let's just fast forward. Let's say they get to college. You know, are they being supported in these majors? Are they even being inspired to say, hey, have you considered this? Or are they actually being, you know, directed in a different path? And so those that even do graduate from um, college now, you know, did they take the proper courses and, you know, did they, are they prepared for their MCAT? We talked about a gap earlier in education. You know, are they able to overcome those gaps to be able to apply and, and understand everything that's required to apply to medical school? So there's lots of reasons why it is multifactorial, societal, educational, um, and even just the imagery of becoming a physician is just simply lacking. What exactly does a holistic medical future entail? Wow, that, that is a really good question. And I think, I hope that it entails um, addressing the physician workforce and the, and the need to improve its diversity. You know, I hope that one day, you know, a, a patient can very easily identify a physician um, that maybe shares the same racial or ethnic um, phenotypic expression as them. And so it's, there's something to be said about being able to connect and identify with your doctor. I think it definitely boasts and improves trust, um, improves communication, um, and this is not to say that, you know, all black people have the same experience, but there's something to be said about being able to talk to someone that you think can understand your, your perspective. And so I hope that holistic review creates a physician workforce where patients can, um, really get the care that they need from the, from the desire, from the provider that they desire to have um, and not based solely on race because that's that's just simply not what I'm trying to say, but just really having someone that you can go to with your problems that is a skilled professional that can handle it, period. Um, diversity in the physician workforce is very, very important to help address the disparities that exist. Um, you know, it, it's, it's something can be said about you know, having a patient come in uh, that may have a burn, a young child that may have a burn injury on their neck from their hair. Um, and so you can say, what, what do you mean have a burn? Well, they were getting braids. 
And part of the process for setting the braids uh, in the black community can be dipping the braids into hot water to help cure them. But one has to be careful that because if you move, you will get burned. And so imagine that mom going into the doctor, into the emergency department and having to explain um, that, yeah, the daughter moved and so she got burned. I can understand that as a black woman that has had braids that need to be cured or needed to be set. And so having my perspective, perhaps being there just saved a, a call to children's services because I understand that this is a normal process. Whereas someone that has never seen that would say, well, no, that's potentially uh, child abuse when, when in, in reality it makes sense to me. And so that type of representation and perspective, um, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it helps to invoke trust, open communication, and just better patient care. In medical school admissions, when the holistic approach is central, what are you looking for as your ideal candidate? You know, I mentioned earlier experiences, attributes, and metrics. And so I want to set metrics aside since we've talked about MCAT and GPA. But let's talk a little bit about what does what type of experiences, why do you need to do these experiences, and then what do I mean by attributes? In terms of experiences, students should really get involved in things that they are passionate about that demonstrates their ability to be service-oriented to other individuals. You know, the AAMC has done a really good job of trying to encapsulate the competencies that are expected of students. And so we have this as a, as a guide, and we look at, again, at the experiences and then the attributes. And the attributes that we're looking for we want to make sure that our students that are coming in are culturally competent. They understand what it means to um, have knowledge of other socioeconomic factors that contribute to a person's behaviors. And, and we want our students to have knowledge of what it means to work on a team and what it means to be a leader, how to collaborate, how to lead, how to problem solve. All of those things are things that will be required of you as a physician. And so we want to see evidence of those attributes prior to medical school. Communication is very, very important. And not only just verbal communication, body language is important, um, picking up on cues, having an ability to understand the social and psychological factors that may be at play are important. And, and it is expected you'll have expected that you will have these skills um, and be able to demonstrate some of these skills in some of the service oriented um, activities that you are involved in. And so. We really, we really just want to see that students are reliable, they're dependable, um, as measured and as indicated by uh, longevity of their activities. Um, episodic activities, volunteering is okay, but I do think that um, individuals in admissions like myself want to see uh, a commitment and not just a, a one and done type of, um, type of activities. And we want to see that students have a capacity for improvement because we call medicine a practice. Why? Because you have to continue to work at it and practice makes perfect. And so um, no one is perfect. No one is free of mistakes. But 
Students do need to be able to demonstrate a capacity for setting goals, learning new things, and then responding appropriately when things don't go well. You won't always get it right, but what did you learn from it? And how will you carry that forward in your future um, future practice? And so those are some of the things that we're looking for. Thank you for touching on that. I know that I can relate really well to that in terms of wanting to be a um, doctor in the future. And I'm sure that many of our viewers can uh, use that as well. And now, time for the bottom line. What final sentiment, advice, or message about the state of racial disparities in healthcare would you like to leave with our listeners? Well, I would like to say that we have accomplished some things, but we still have much work to do. The healthcare disparities that exist across every specialty, from family medicine to derm- dermatology, orthopedics, uh, whether it is representation of physicians in those fields or if it is the outcomes associated with our patients uh, or even research within the respective areas, we need to do better. We need to continue to use holistic admissions as a way of diversifying our physician workforce. We need to be cognizant of how we treat people um, and view all people as equal and valuable uh, for who they are and what they bring to the table. No one is perfect. And I think that having more empathy and compassion in our daily lives can help us. Um, Being a physician is such a noble calling um, filled with a lot of responsibility. I feel very honored and privileged to be in the roles that I am, to be able to be a role model. Um, Yes, I am working to improve the diversity of our medical school. I have a team that uh, helps me with this. Uh, we're very proud of the of our all of our rankings, including our diversity rankings, being ranked the seventh most diverse medical school uh, by U.S. News and World Report is is a very noble uh, and honorable mention. But that's not the end all be all, and we're much more than our rankings, and we still have much more work to do. The fact that we have twenty six percent of our incoming class coming from underrepresented backgrounds is only a start. It We have to make sure that we have the retention, the support, the sense of belonging, the resources, and we need to see them through to graduation so that they can go on to any specialty of their choice to address the issues within the healthcare system. And while I am very happy to be in the space that I am in and be the role model that I may be for some, I would be remiss without giving uh, a shout out to my mom, my sister, my sisters, my husband, my daughters, the Young Scholars Program, the Ohio State University Young Scholars Program, all the teachers, mentors, um, friends and family that have supported me along the way. I am here uh, because of all the support that I have received. And I just feel very, very blessed to be able to impact someone else in a positive manner. 